Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 8 to 12. I titled this morning's message, Finally, All of You Be of One Mind. And actually, while I was away uh, on vacation here, I was reading a book on the relevance of God's Word. How relevant is the Word of God for us today? And you would think, for most of us, and I think those of us that have been at least part of this church or a Calvary Chapel or a church that actually teaches the Word of God and the whole counsel of God's Word, that maybe wouldn't be a question. How relevant is the Word of God for today? But it's interesting that there are those that question that. There are those that think that we need somehow to make the Word of God more relevant for our day and age that we're living in. We, um, we're living in a world that, as Pastor Kyle was sharing about the persecution each week that's happening around the world, we're living in a world that still has persecution. As a matter of fact, Christians are being persecuted in a greater way in more of a, a volume of, uh, of persecution than ever in history around the world. And that's why Kyle gets up and shares each week and brings highlights a country or a person or puts something before you so that we as Christians would pray. The letter that Peter is writing here in 1 Peter, he's writing it to a suffering church. Uh, church as a whole, that this letter was gone out to multiple churches, and the Christians were suffering persecution at that time, and Peter knew that the church needed to be encouraged. The church needed to, to know that their God was with them, that, that, that suffering would lead to glory, that there would be an end of all of this that would ultimately, ultimately lead to glory. They needed to persevere like we do, that we need to persevere in the days that we're living in. We also need that encouragement ourselves. But as I shared about the relevance of God's Word. There are, and it's sad to say, but there are some Christians, there are some pastor teachers, there are some churches today that, that think that we need to make the Bible more relevant. They sometimes do it at the expense of the Word of God. They do other things, in other words, within the church. They sometimes are more entertaining to the church than they are the teaching of the Word of God. And they're trying to, to be relevant for the day. They're trying to, to bring in stories and different kinds of things that will make it more relevant. And stories are not bad. Bringing things in like that into the Word, as long as the Word of God is being taught. And I would say the whole counsel of God's Word, 66 books, all of God's Word being brought in time to the people of God. Some 
have thought that because the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, that it needs to be made more relevant for our day and age. You know, there's culture, there's dress, there's ways that they did things 2,000 years ago that they're not doing today. And so they bring that into the Word of God. They bring that into wanting to make things more relevant for our generation. The Bible, as it's written, I don't believe needs to be made more relevant. We don't need to make the Bible more relevant. The Bible is relevant 2,000 years ago as it is today. We know that there's changes that have happened over the 2,000 years of church history. There's changes that have happened in the church. The way church is done, the way church is, we see church. But some of the things that have never changed is the way to heaven and the way to hell. That's never changed. John 3.16 has never changed. It's the same most significant verse in the Bible 2,000 years ago as it is today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. I don't need to make that verse more relevant for today. It is relevant. We might say that from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, or from Eden into eternity, the truths and the relevancy of God's Word remain the same. We could have 6,000 years of history from the book of Genesis to today. 6,000 plus years of history and the Word of God remains just as relevant today as it was then. If you've struggled in that way, of maybe even coming and coming into a church and saying, well, you know, I'd like to see more, you know, more, you know, things other than the Word of God to make it more relevant so that I can walk away with, you know, we need to be careful with that. And there's a lot of churches that are appeasing people with those things. I have to say that I believe that the Word of God is enough. Knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ through His Word is enough. It's all that we really need is found in the Word of God. You see, for me, when I come to church or when I go to church or when I'm teaching here, that's what I come. I come to hear the Word of God. I come to this place because I want to hear from God and how I hear from God is from His Word. And so the Bible is relevant for today. The Bible is practical for today. It's practical and it's relevant for all life and godliness for the Christian. Peter writes in his second letter in in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, His divine power, that's God's divine power, has given to us all things that pertain to, to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory 
and virtue. That word virtue has to do with our moral excellence before God. You see, God never changes. We're told in Hebrews 13.8 that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And aren't you glad? God does not change. The Word of God also never changes. Jesus said in Matthew 24.35 that heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. God's Word, it endures forever. Persecution, suffering for Christians in the church, has not changed in 2,000 years. As a matter of fact, it's intensified in the days that we're living. We're hearing uh, Kyle highlight one of those each week. And he's doing it for the purpose that you and I would intercede for those brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted for their faith. You see, cultures change. Technology changes. The way we dress changes. Worship styles change. We do, we do things differently today in some ways of worship than, than maybe they were done some years back. But what will never change is the sinful nature of man. The, the nature of man has not changed. The tongue, the lying lips that the Bible speaks about has not changed either. The eyes and the heart of man have not changed. The evil deeds and the evil speaking of man has not changed. Anger, retaliation against others has not changed. Fleshly lusts have not changed. Darkness and light have not changed. Nor has pride ever changed. The same pride that was in the garden is the same pride that you and I contend with today. It hasn't changed. In 1 Peter 1.23, Peter writes, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as the grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fall away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which the gospel was preached to you. Some things remain the same. Some things change. Peter summed it up this way. He says in 1 Peter 2.17, which still applies today, by the way. Honor all people, period. Love the brotherhood, period. Fear God, period. And honor the king. You see, these truths have not changed. They're the same for us today as when Peter wrote it to the churches 2,000 years ago. The Bible is relevant for us today. 
And we can take away from it the same way they did in the early church. Peter, like Paul, really like all of the New Testament writers, would do this when they would write a letter. First, they would encourage the believers, and then they would exhort the believers to do something with that. That's the way when you read your Bible, look for the encouragements, and then it's real sure that after you've been encouraged, you're going to see an exhortation. Now this is what you need to do in light of that. This is how you should live in light of what I've done for you. You see, encouragement we all need. But we also need exhortation. We all love to come to this place to be encouraged, to be lifted up. But we should also come to this place wanting to be exhorted. Wanting to be challenged in our faith. Wanting God to to speak something into our hearts, even if it hurts. Even if it kind of digs up against the grain of, of the struggles that we have. God, I'm open. God, would you show me? I need to be exhorted. I need to be challenged by the Word of God. That's a good place to be in. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like you wanted to run from that kind of stuff? I don't want to get too deep into it. I don't want to go too far. But God, everything that you have for me, I want it. And if something needs to change in me, God, would you change me? Would you have your way in me? encouragement and exhortation. It's always the order that we see in Scripture. And I'm glad that it's that way. In a sense, God builds us up that He might now exhort us to do something with it. After encouraging the believers here in Peter's first letter, in uh, chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims that you abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter here, after they've been encouraged, he now exhorts them. Abstain from fleshly lusts. It's relevant for us today. It's the same for us as Christians today, that we would abstain from fleshly lusts which war against our soul. That we would have our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. It's the same for us today. It's why when we pick up the Word of God, we don't read it as if Peter is just speaking to a people 2,000, but God is speaking into our hearts today. One of the reasons people might think the Bible isn't relevant for today is they don't know their Bible, if I could put it that bluntly. They don't know their Bible. They're not spending enough time in the Word of God 
to know their Bible well. And so when they come to church and they're looking for something relevant to take away from their time and service, they're looking for something that's going to just meet their need. We need to know our Word. We need to know our Bibles well. And if you do, God will give you everything that you need for life and godliness. It's all sufficient. It's all right here. It's, it's everything that we need. We don't need other kinds of things on top of this to meet the need. God's Word and knowing Him through His Word is enough. Not knowing your Bible will also keep you from knowing what God requires of you. That's a big question for some Christians. What does God really want from me? What does He really, how does He really want me to live? What does He really want from me as a child of God? If you know the Word of God and you're spending time in the Word of God, I will tell you, you will quickly find out. If you're open to the exhortations of God's Word, you will quickly begin to change. Let's start by reading our text this morning, but let's read what we're going to read this morning in light of what I just shared about the relevancy of God's Word. Does this apply to us today? Can we take something away from the words of Peter today the same way that the church did 2,000 years ago? When we look at what we're going to read this morning, we, we realize that there's a spiritual fight that we're all engaged in. There's a spiritual battle that we all find ourselves in at times. It's a real struggle. It's a real battle. There's real things that go on inside of us. God's Word has the answer for all of those things. These exhortations of Peter, they are relevant for today. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at your Bibles in verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's our text. It's relevant. 
It speaks the same way into our hearts today as it did in the time that Peter wrote this letter. He starts off in verse 8 with the word, finally. And finally, all of you be of one mind. And the finally there is not because it's the final words of Peter's letter. He's using the word finally in light of all the exhortations that he gave prior to this. The exhortations that he gave in the, the, uh, the previous chapter about living godly in an ungodly world. About being submissive to governments and authorities over your life. And masters and, and, and those in our workplace. You see, God doesn't leave any stone unturned. He deals with every real issue of life. At work, servants and masters, government, the, the, the world that we live in. Living godly in an ungodly world. All relevant, isn't it? Things we need to hear. He talks about wives being submissive to their husbands, and he gives a word to the husbands about honoring your wives. These are all practical exhortations that Peter was giving to them and that we're receiving today. But Peter says, finally, all of you be of one mind. Or we might say, all of you be in unity of the faith. That's a good word. It's important. It's it's actually really important that the church, and that's you and I, would be of one mind. We'd have, the, uh, we'd have one mindset. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, Paul was in prison as he was writing this, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all, and he says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. And then he says this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, if the church would just do that. Oh, if we as Christians in relationships would just do that. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as we're called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Sounds like a lot of unity there to me. The body of Christ in unity. Finally, all of you be of one mind. You see, what a, a, what a black eye to the church. What a poor testimony the church is to an unsaved world when they're not of one mind. When they're not endeavoring to keep the unity. 
And by the way, that's not just within the, the four walls of the building here. That's at home. The testimony even of your marriage. That's in, in relationships in general. With each other. Christians interacting with each other. Christians on the same page. With the same mindset. With each other. One body. God doesn't see a whole bunch of different bodies of Christians and churches and everything. He sees one. He doesn't look at titles. He doesn't look at denominations. He doesn't look at... He sees believers. He sees one unit of believers. Either you know Christ or you don't. You're either part of God's church or you're not. Even if you go to a church... You need to be part of God's church, the body of Christ. In that same letter Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And God Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then he says, why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then look what he says in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, until I'm like being changed into the image of Christ, God has given these gifts to the church that we would all endeavor to come into that place of unity, of mind, of faith, that we're all on the same page. We all, we're all going the same direction. We all know what this life is all about. We know where it's going to end up. We're all on that same page together. We know what the gospel message is for. We know who needs to hear it. We have the same message, the same calling that's upon our lives. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Wow. Don't you want to go to a church like that? Don't you want to hang around Christians like that? That are of the same mind. There's unity in the midst of why we're here. We're not all going off different directions thinking God has a different plan and all these different things. No, we have one focus of one purpose. I want to worship God. I want to glorify Him when I come into this place. And when I leave this place, I want to go out and I want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I want to tell people about Him. And I'm looking forward to that day when Christ is going to return. Until then, I'm laboring and I'm running my race to the end. And we're all on that same page. We're all going in the, the same direction. It's not that all Christians are the same. I think we all see that right here. We're not all cookie cutters. You know, we're not all out of the same mold. We have different personalities and we're different. And that's the body of Christ. That's the uniqueness of the body of Christ. It's not, I wrote that 
all Christians are made from the same mold, we can have unique differences and still be of one mind, have one purpose, and one end goal. And we can be different. The church which God brought forth for His purposes is a powerful witness to this world. It's powerful when we're all tuned in to the same fork. How about if we're not? How about if all the Christians within a particular church are not tuned to the same fork? Some of you have heard this written by A.W. Tozer. I'll read it to you again. He wrote this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. 100 pianos tuned to the same fork are tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned. Not to each other. In other words, we're not being tuned to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. We're being tuned to Him. We're not being tuned to each other. 100 pianos tuned to the same fork is powerful. So 100 worshipers meet together. Each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. You see, if all of us have our focus upon Him, if we're being tuned to Him, we're nearer to each other than if we try to tune ourselves to others and other things. I want to be tuned to Him. I want you to be in tune with Him. And when you're in tune and I'm in tune with Him, then what happens in this place, we're going to be like a hundred pianos tuned to the same fork. I think that's a great quote. I think it's a great picture for the church. As Christians... I think we know this. We don't always see eye to eye. And you know what? And I'm going to say to that, that's okay. We don't always see eye to eye on everything and every issue. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, if we did, as Christians... It wouldn't be unity, it would be uniformity. It wouldn't be unity, it would be uniformity, which is a state of being uniform. We're called to be of one mind. 
in unity. One purpose. One faith. One direction that we're going. But we don't always have to be, and we aren't, exactly the same. And we can have differences and still be in unity with one another. Have you ever found somebody that didn't quite believe something the way you believe, but I can still maintain a unity of mind and spirit and purpose of what we're about? At least we should. How about the things that are fundamental? Sometimes those things can bring a divide between believers. There's a saying that most of us have heard in fundamentals, unity. The essential things, we need unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In everything, love. That's the marker. That's what we should strive for. The fundamentals that are important. We don't stray from them. Jesus is God. God manifested Himself in flesh and blood. God in flesh. A fundamental truth. Something I can't kind of get on board with others that would deny that. But non-essentials. There's liberty. There's certain things. And so, unity within the body of Christ. Being of one mind in unity. If we could just simply keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Be tuned to that same tuning fork. If our desire is to to know His mind. Do you have a desire to know the mind of Christ? Do you have a desire to know Him in a more intimate way? If you have that desire to know Him, you're going to find Him in the Word of God. You want to know more about Him? Then look to the Word of God. If you want to have your mind aligned with His mind, if you want your purpose in life to be His purpose, if our goal in life is to have His goal, what's God's goal in life? What's God's goal for you in life? I want to know what His goal is. You see, if we all did that with the same mind, all of us here, your mind would be more like Christ. You would begin to to take on the very mind of Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
You see, I can't tell God anything that He doesn't already know. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows me better than I know myself. I just want to align with His mind. I want to get on board with how He thinks. What His goals and purposes are for me. And if we do that individually, we're never going to be more in unity with one another than when we take on Christ's mind. It's just going to happen. Wow, that church is on the same page. You go into that place, these people, they have a vision, purpose, they know where they're going, they know what they're about. That's a healthy church. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, He says, therefore, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Being like-minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind that I just, we just read, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then you read on in that, and you read about the humble servant, Jesus Christ. That's the one we look to. Let this mind be in you. Peter also says in verse 8, he says, having compassion for one another. That word compassion literally means to suffer with. To have compassion for one another means to suffer with or feeling the like with another. Being sympathetic towards others. We hear Kyle each week highlight a church, a country, a person that is being persecuted for their faith. We lifted up a prayer today. And in a sense, what we are doing is coming alongside and suffering alongside those persecuted believers around the world. Having compassion for one another. Suffering with one another. When one part of the body is suffering, the rest of the body is suffering. Do you know that it's to my advantage that you are all doing well in my own personal walk? And it's to your advantage that I'm doing well. If I'm not doing well, 
it'll affect you. If you're not doing well, it'll affect me and affect others. It's important for us all to have that compassion for one another. Coming alongside one another. Showing compassion. Suffering with one another. Being compassionate towards each other. It's relevant. It's for today. It's in the church. Peter also says love is brothers. The new living translation reads, love each other as brothers and sisters. Do you remember the first time that you heard that terminology? You gave your life to Christ. You heard people calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. And man, what is this? Brothers and sisters in the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Try using that with somebody that doesn't know the Lord. They don't get it. To love as brothers, love as sisters in Christ. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? That you're a child of God, and then you have brothers and sisters over the whole world. It's an amazing thought. I've been to different parts of the world. I've been in different countries, and I've gathered together with other Christians. And we come together, and, and, and we can love like brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can also be on the same page in unity of why we're here and what we're about. And I just met you just now. And I just came to your church for the first time. And you're doing the same thing that we do back here in North Carolina. Because it's the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing to consider that you are a child of God. And by that, you have extended family. Christians have huge families. You know, you might have a small biological family, but you got a huge family in Christ. You got brothers and sisters that encompass the whole world. Amazing thought. Peter says back in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, and then he says, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. When you came to faith in Christ, relationships changed. Your relationship with God, it changed, didn't it? Your relationship with other people changed. Especially the relationship that you have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Relationships changed. 
or at least they should have. We look at relationships differently now as Christians. But Peter says we're to have sincere love of the brethren. We're to love one another fervently with a pure heart. And why would Peter even bring that up? Why would he even bring those words into it and bring that to the surface of what he's exhorting the church to do? To have sincere love. To love one another fervently. With a pure heart. And I have to suggest that it would be because there is a kind of love that is not sincere. There are those that are not really loving one another with a sincere love and out of a pure heart and pure motives of why they do it. And that's within the church. That happens within the church. We need to be careful, Christians, that we soul search, we allow God to search our hearts. We say, God, would you show me the sincerity of my love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a big question. You see, We all have relationships. We have family relationships. Sometimes we don't even do well in our biological relationships with family members. We have strife. Maybe there's not sincere love there. But then we come to church. And it's a whole different thing. Oh, now I've got to switch gears. Now I'm going to love from a pure heart and love with sincerity, my brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm struggling with my biological relationships. Our prayer might be, God, would you search my heart? God, would you help me to love others the way you love me? Give me your love for them. Let my love be a sincere love for the brethren. That'd be a good prayer for all of us. And just think what God might do in our hearts if we sincerely brought that before Him. Loving is a thing that only God can work in us. At least loving the way God wants us to love. Agape. A sacrificial love for one another. Something different than the way the world loves in relationships. Peter goes on and Verse 8, he says, be tender-hearted, Christians. 
which means having a heart that's sensitive to the needs and the feelings of others. Do we come to this place looking for that? Being sensitive to what's going on around me? This is not a place to come to just to look for a handful of people to minister to you. This is a place to come to that you might minister to others as God has ministered to you. That you could be a vessel that God could use to minister to those in need. Those that need prayer. Those that need someone to come alongside them. To encourage them. To lift them up. See, that's why we come to this place. It's a place for those that have had a bad week. Those that are struggling in ways. People that are, you know, that's why we come to this place. To be encouraged and to be exhorted by one another. Peter says also in verse 8, Be courteous. Be courteous towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have humble thinking is really what it's talking about. Have humble thinking towards others. Put others first when you come together. Be gracious towards one another. Say gracious things towards each other. Take an opportunity to assist somebody, to come alongside somebody. That's what it means to be courteous. It's never coarse, it's never vulgar, it's never rude. It's coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ, in the body of Christ. Be courteous. We might say it's genuine Christian politeness. It's unfeigned love on one side and it's humility on the other side. Be courteous towards one another. Verse 9 Peter goes on and says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This was something that Peter needed to say. Because the church was living under persecution and suffering. Peter needed to bring these words to the church. He knew what they were, he knew what he was experiencing. He knew what they were experiencing. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You see, Peter himself, he he learned early on in ministry that God's way is not always man's way. Have you learned that? God's way is not my way. 99.9% of the time, probably. How Jesus reacted to His persecutors is what we're called to do also. It's our witness. 
It's our relationship that we have with Christ. And you know what? It's powerful in the eyes of those who observe it. It's a great witness. When a Christian is being ridiculed, mocked, something you know, against them for their faith, and they don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You see, evil has to do with deeds. And reviling has to do with our words. The things that we would say back. The things that we feel we have the right to say back. Remember when Peter was in the garden the night that Jesus was arrested? Peter was there and they came to arrest Jesus and Peter takes the sword and swings it and cuts off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus says to him, put away your sword. Put it away. It's not my way. It's not how I want to accomplish what I'm here to accomplish. The flesh wants to react, doesn't it? Peter did. He learned early on in ministry. That his ways are not the Lord's ways. Jesus also taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. And here's the key, for my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, Jesus says, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not exempt, church. As a matter of fact, the days are coming that are growing more and more evil. You make a stand for Christ and you need to be prepared in heart and mind. You need to be prepared if you make a stand for Christ that there will be people that will not like what you stand for. And then the big question comes, so how do I respond? What do I do when people don't like what I stand for? How should I respond to those people? Peter says, but on the contrary, blessing. In other words, blessing your revilers. Knowing that you were called to this, Christians, that you may inherit a blessing yourself. We're not called to bless our persecutors just so that we'll get a blessing. That's not why we do what we do. We're called to bless our persecutors because we're imitating the one who has blessed us. 
What a difference. What a motivation. The one who has blessed you greatly is your motivation. The one that led by example for us to follow of how he dealt with his persecutors is what we're called to as Christians. I think we all know that our flesh, when it's been wronged, it doesn't want to bless. You ever found that out? Somebody says something against you, whether that's a family member, somebody you know, at work, you know, somebody at church. They say something against you. And then you want to turn around and bless. Be a testimony for the Lord. Not easy to do. And there's a lot of Christians that won't. They don't and they won't. They're not going to do it. You're not going to invade my space and then expect me to be quiet. You see, returning evil for evil is the tendency of our flesh. You hurt me, you made me upset, you wronged me, you did this, and now you need to have the same. It shouldn't be that way. Remember Stephen as he was being stoned by the religious leaders. And then he says, and get this, he's being stoned. I don't think anyone in here has been stoned. But I have to imagine that would be very difficult to be there on your knees and people hurling rocks at you and you being stoned. And in that moment, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. No. <laughs> that came off of Stephen's lips. I don't think that any one of us, including Stephen, would be able to do that without the enabling grace of our Lord. Can't do it. God is the one that enables you in the moment. Peter, then, he quotes from Psalm 34, verse 12 to 16. What I like about Peter here in this letter that's evident, he knows his Bible. Peter knows his Bible. He uses the Bible to reinforce the statements that he makes. In this first letter, I looked at all the, the different occasions and, and Peter has already quoted from Leviticus and Isaiah. He's quoting here from the Psalms and he's going to quote from the Proverbs. Peter knew his Bible. And he used it like we should. Know your Word of God. Know the Bible and use it. It's powerful. We see Peter using the Scriptures here to reinforce what he just said in verse 9. Peter tells them 
there's a special blessing from God upon those who would refrain from repaying evil for evil. To the one who would refrain his tongue from speaking evil, Peter says, God will reward those who leave the righteous judgments to him. Leave it to God. Let God deal with the evildoers. I think some of the greatest challenges as Christians, they come when someone speaks evil against you. <laughs> this is the biggest, this is the hard one. Somebody speaking evil against you. Somebody wrong, doing something against you wrong. And if somebody says a lie to you, that cuts, that hurts. Our flesh doesn't do well with it. It wants to retaliate. It wants to say what it's going to say. But when it does happen, and it will happen, when it does, and it will, we're all called to, as Christians, to respond differently. We're called to respond differently than we would if we didn't know Christ. To this you are called as Christians. Disputes and arguments, personality conflicts amongst Christians. I'm going to say they should never be left to linger. How about marriage? Don't let those things linger in your marriage. In other words, deal with things quickly. We should do that in the church. We should do that outside of the church. You see, that's the godly way. That's what God calls us to. Look at verse 10, and we're drawing to an end here. For he who would love life and see good days, he's quoting from Psalm here, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's telling lies. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek or let him search for peace and pursue it. In other words, to pursue something means you need to, to work to maintain it. Let him pursue peace. Let him work to maintain peace. That, that, that makes it feel like there's effort involved. On my part, to seek after peace, to maintain peace, to pursue it. Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I remember witnessing one time going door to door in an apartment complex. I knocked on a door, had an opportunity to share the gospel uh, with this lady. And as I walked away from the door and walked uh, uh, into the courtyard of this apartment complex, the boyfriend of this girl who was in another apartment across the way saw me walking away from the door. 
He might have assumed that I was a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know. He saw Bible in hand. He, he knew some kind of conversation was going on with his girlfriend. He literally came out of that front door, swinging the front door uh, open and running towards me. Running towards me. With a look on his face that didn't look like it was going to be good. And when he approached me, he came right, you know, two inches from my face and says, we're Mormon. And he wanted, I mean, he was just waiting for a response from me. All it would have taken is for me to loosely get irritated with him and everything would have broke loose. That's how angry he was in the name of Mormonism, by the way, that he was towards me, coming to his door with a Bible in hand. How do we respond in those times? What do we do with those things? My response to him, which I know was the Lord, because in the flesh, you can feel it kind of jerking around inside what you'd like to do. But I just quietly said, you know, we're just, I, I forget even exact words, but we're just here simply wanting to talk to people about the Bible. If I would have flinched, he would have wanted to get into it. And I'm just thinking, what a testimony. I mean, if I would have come back from that day of witnessing, getting into a big fist fight with somebody... <laughs> Not a good testimony, not a good witness. But the Lord was gracious to me and He gave me that enabling grace in the moment. And that soft word turned away wrath in the moment. I've had a number of occasions like that, by the way. But, and I know that it works. It worked in the moment. It's what God calls us to. Loving others is not towards those who will always love us. You see, it's easy to love those that love you, isn't it? Doing good to those that do good to you, so easy. How about those that don't like you? Don't like what you stand for. Your enemies. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5.44, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Even that rubs up the grain of who I am as a human being. But in Christ, I look at that and I say, Jesus said, love your enemies. It's what I'm called to do. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow, His ways are not my ways. That they may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? He asked the question, 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? So easy to love on people that love you. But if you rub up against somebody that is, you know, prickly and rude and doesn't want to have anything to do with you and what you stand for, what do we do with that? I read a quote by an unknown author. Christians are supposed to be a living example of what Christ is. I like that. I'll close with this reminder. Finally, all of you, endeavor to be of one mind and of one faith. Have compassion for one another. Sympathize in the joy and sorrows of others. Love as brothers and sisters in Christ. Be tender-hearted, pitiful towards those who are afflicted. Be courteous by showing genuine Christian politeness. Be humble-minded. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling when you are persecuted. But on the contrary, we seek to bless our persecutors and those who would speak evil of us. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way that we are called to walk as Christians. Peter's not done with this whole thinking of persecution. Next week, Peter is going to encourage the believers that in their relationships with those who don't know Christ, persecution's going to come. You're going to get it. In essence, is what he's saying. It will come. But I'm going to encourage you that in your suffering, your suffering will lead to glory. Your suffering will lead to something greater than you could ever imagine. If you will endure and you will do it God's way, God will bless you. He reminds them and He reminds us that even the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And can't even compare it. It's all worth it. And so next week, next week's title, I actually got ahead on this one, Suffering for Doing Good. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the Word of God. I thank You that it's just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, the Word of God has the same power, has the same relevancy to each one of us today. God, as we have looked at these verses even this morning, 
Some of us maybe were challenged and exhorted and Lord, You spoke some things into our heart. Maybe some things that we need to get right. Some things that we need to repent of. Some things that we need to bring before You and let You have Your way in us. Lord, that You would change our hearts. That You would change our thinking, our minds. That we would be more like You we would glorify You with our lives. We'd glorify You with our lips. And Lord, that You, Lord, would be lifted up. I pray that this church, Lord, would raise You up to Your proper place. That this world would be drawn into this place, Lord, to meet You. Let it be our lives Lord, that are shining for You. Let it be our changed lives that that people desire to want to know more. Let our works, our good works, be seen by those who don't know Christ, that they may glorify our Father which is in heaven. Father, I thank You for this church, Calvary Chapel Fellowship. I pray your, Your blessing upon each one of us here. Lord, that you would use us even in these up-and-coming outreaches that we're going to do on on Saturday. Lord, use us to your glory in this, this neighborhood, this place that you have placed us as a church. Lord, that we would be busy for the things of you. Bless, Lord, Wednesday night our youth as they gather together, Lord, for a youth night. Lord, bless, grow them. Use, Lord, this time. Lord, and our young people in this church. I pray that you would put a hedge about each one of them, Lord, from this world. This world wants to rob them and steal from them and and even destroy their life, Lord. And Lord, we pray, Lord, for our youth. We pray that you would continue to do a, a great work in their young hearts. They would rise up and be bold for you be unashamed of you. And I pray for the parents, Lord, that you'd give much wisdom. Lord, let them see the importance of their kids gathering together with other kids that love you, that they themselves, Lord, would be a a strength to each other. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Fill us, Lord, even now with your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we go out. Use us, Lord, this week. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.